0: Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the Live to Walk Again podcast. Uh, my name is Jeremy Dixon. I'm your host as always. And uh, this week, unfortunately, Brandon was not able to make it because uh, his son Ryder came down with appendicitis and had is in the hospital and uh, we're sending all of our, our prayers and best wishes his way uh he's he's going through it a little bit the whole family is so i had to call in the big guns this week i had to go to the bullpen uh you know brought in uh my uncle ricardo benavides ricardo welcome to the show
1: hey jeremy it's good to be here
0: yeah happy to have you happy to have you um real quick anybody you know I've, you obviously found this podcast somewhere but you can listen on any platform that has podcasts uh you know if you could rate review share and like uh we would appreciate it and uh yeah thank thanks ricardo for coming down man i know you you drove you drove an hour down here to to do a quick uh quick podcast with me i appreciate appreciate
1: you doing that well it was good it's it's a you know beautiful day here in the northwest so a little drive is no problem at all for you jerry yeah i appreciate it i do man
0: yeah, you know, I, I have a great guest this week. I know I, I did, uh, I sent you the video of uh, of my guy Andrew Pelling on uh, his TED Talk um, about, I guess, treating spinal cord injuries, or at least using asparagus as a scaffold to treat spinal cord injuries, which is a pretty wild video. What what did you think
1: of that? Oh, it was amazing. You know, it reminded me of the uh, um, printing, you know, the uh
0: like 3D printing. 3D
1: printing, yeah, that uh, everybody uses, right? And um, this guy is a thinker out of the box. You know, it was pretty amazing to use uh, plant tissue. Not actually the tissue, but the scaffolding of uh, like asparagus to make this uh, framework for spinal cord injuries. So uh, he said he'd worked on it for five years, something like that. Right. Five or more years with him and his team. And uh, they had some real ethical issues, which was really interesting, you know, um, to see absolutely yeah.
0: yeah it was you know the um i guess the analogy he used f- when we were talking in the pot in the interview that that's coming up here in a few minutes uh he talked about that they were watching or some of his team members at his lab were watching a uh, little shop of horrors the movie with the plant that talks and sings and eats people
1: yeah with and, moranis yeah, was yeah <laughs> right
0: yeah And uh, that that was kind of where they got the, they were just like, huh, I wonder if we can do that. And that started their, the ear study that they worked on that was in the video. And we'll include the video. I think I've included it before in a podcast, just uh, in the description, but we'll do that again so everybody can check that out um, of his TED talk. But yeah, I thought that was funny that they just were thinking so far outside the box that it was like, hey, you know, what what can we really do here to try to make an apple or an ear out of an apple, which is... Bizarre, you know.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, you know, the thing is, is that um, um, with many diseases, you know, or injuries like uh, heart disease or spinal column injuries, like you have, is that um, the technology exists out there. It's just that ethical uh, point of view that you have to get over those hurdles you have to get over, and a lot of times it's experimentation on animals, which he discusses in his video how he had some problems with it, but now that they you know the out of box thinking of using plant tissue right and plant material kind of eliminates some of that um those ethical issues right that they have with right. experimenting on animals yeah
0: absolutely absolutely and they you know and that, now and that, it was really hard to watch in that video seeing the you know the rats kind of drag their their hind legs behind them and and you know but I, and, and i get that it's for the better betterment of hopefully anyway the betterment of of people dealing with this injury but um you know it's it's nice to hear that they were they struggled with it as well so um and, and yeah it's just it's such a it's it's inspiring to see people be able to come up with things like this to me um that you know the pelling lab there in in ottawa is where where they're out of uh, it was just, yeah. And it was, it was refreshing talking to him. He's, he's like the nicest guy ever. Andrew is. So it was nice to, to get to visit with him for, for a little bit. Um, and yeah, he's, he's, a, I mean, just being able to, cause he wasn't any, he had no, I guess I, I asked him if he had any previous work with spinal cord injury patients or even like that had even been in his kind of. You know, periphery, and he said absolutely not. And I thought I was a crazy person, even, you know, going to the like when they approached a doctor to like uh, convene on a on a study. He was like, I thought I was going to get told to you know get the hell out of their office,
1: basically. And
0: uh, he was able to able to make it happen. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm happy about that for sure. Well, I think
1: that's um one of the great things about, for young people, right, is to sit around and observe, right, and um, look at the natural world and see what you can do with it, you know, not exploit it, but to see how you can use it to help people. And uh, his example, you know, I guess, you know, he cut the end of the asparagus off and noticed that there's a structure at the end of it. And he went, wow, I've seen that somewhere before. Where have I seen that? And that's what dragged him right into the uh, spinal cord research.
0: Right. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah, it's it's inspiring to see see things like that pop up from out of nowhere. So, uh, you know, I did want to bring up to uh, Ricardo. I don't know how much of the Olympics you've been watching, but um, the the young woman for the U.S. team that won the uh, gold medal in one of the gymnastics, I think maybe the all-around gymnastics competition after Simone Biles had. Uh, had to had to bow out, um, is, is a young lady named Sanisa Lee and her father, John actually just suffered a spinal cord injury, uh, two years ago, helping his neighbor, uh, cut down some limbs off of a tree, fell off of a, off of a ladder and ended up, uh, you know, breaking his, his back and in some level, I wasn't able to find what level injury he is, but, um, you know, definitely, uh, it's good i i I always struggle with you know when you see people like that have a lot of um you know either fame or or people that are in the news suffering a spinal cord injury like it's never a good thing other than it drives more research and you know gets more eyes and people asking questions about why spinal cords can't be fixed and things like that so um you know, it's good. To, I guess I wanted to recognize that that he was uh, he's out there and and suffering a spinal cord injury as well, and and it's just you know hopefully we can get some more more eyeballs on this injury and. and
1: well, know. yeah, you know, I mean, it is tragic that um, her dad got hurt, um, but you know, I think it's um, and I don't want to get all political on this, but you know, when Christopher Reeve had his injury, right in sport, uh-huh. you would think that there would have been a ton of research and money poured into uh, spinal cord injury. And maybe there was at the time, I don't know. But um, I think that um, things get forgotten so easily in this quick news cycle, right? And if it doesn't um, directly impact you, you know, we're all gonna get older someday, right? Hopefully. Yeah. And um, you know, whether it's um, spinal cord injuries or uh, neuropathy or some other genetic defect that you, know, you don't even know you have, and it only appears as you get older. Um, this type of research is really benefiting everybody, right? You know, and uh, so I think that uh, you know, if you're out there and you have a, a charity that you donate money to, or you don't have a charity you donate money to, it's always a good thing to get out there and and uh, maybe even uh, yours. Yeah, um, you know, live to walk again at gmail on uh, on
0: PayPal. Anybody that wants to make a donation. Yeah, so you know, it, it's it's uh it's definitely I, I can feel the momentum building when you see things like the Pelling Lab doing doing this study we're gonna hear about, and you know like Elon Musk getting involved with the Neuralink and things like that, and that's always been like one of my ever since I saw the Neuralink, Ricardo, I I've told Brandon a ton of times on the show that you know if he can get the you know, your body to be able to start moving again. Right. Right. Then the other scientists and doctors can focus on the feeling part of things. Right. The getting, you know, re- restoring feeling and touch and things like that, as opposed to because, you know, I've talked to a couple of people that with the Neuralink they're like, well, you know, you still, you, you won't know if you like roll your ankle or something and you're injuring yourself or you won't know if you're too cold or you're too hot if you know if and when they're able to to have you moving your body just by thinking about it you're still not going to be able to actually feel that you're gonna you know you're still gonna have to like look down make sure your foot isn't underneath you in the wrong way or whatever the case may be so um i, I really think that this is a good co-treatment or whatever you want to say to make this uh
1: foot injury do away with this thing once and for all well you know what jeremy i never even thought about this sensation part about it yeah. You know, uh it, one thing to move, it's another thing for the sensation and the grip, and strength and stuff like that. So Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's going to be uh it's going to be interesting. I, I you know, if I if you were to ask me 24 years ago, whatever it's been, now 23 years ago when I got injured, if I thought, yeah, you know, I thought by this time I was going to be walking and no problem riding a hoverboard like on a back to the future or something. So i definitely didn't think i'd still be still be paralyzed and dealing with this but uh you know it is what it is and i'm glad that some of the brightest people in the in the world are working on it
1: well you know Jer, i can't believe it's been that long either i was thinking about that on the way down here and um i know that um i don't know that i could have been as strong as you are you know um because um One of the things that uh, we take for granted, a lot of people take for granted, is the ability to just roll out of bed in the morning, you know, uh, with your back aching or whatever it is, and and little complaints, but um, you suddenly had your movement taken away from you. And um, that, well, the way you handled that, I've never heard you complain or um, be sad and to me, it's uh, you're an inspiration to me to visit with you all the time and see you because, you know, you're still just Jer, you know, and that's uh, a, a really amazing spirit that you have.
0: I, I appreciate it, man. I really do. Uh, I was thinking back to when when I was in the hospital and how you know obviously I was uh, the hospital I was in was 45 minutes from my house where my you know my immediate family was. But you know you and and you know Aunt Gina and Aunt Teresa and Uncle Dave and, and all the cousins and everything coming every day. I mean you guys came to the hospital every single day when I was in rehab at the rehab hospital and like that was very I, I mean just that helped get me through for sure and keep a smile on my face and and you know just keep going. So I, I definitely appreciate. Well, Appreciate I, you and everybody.
1: I think that's the other side of this, right? Because when somebody does become injured is that um, family out there needs to be supportive. And the number one thing is, as is, is, especially as I get older that I know now, is that um, you can't replace family. You can replace all the things. Work will always be there. Jobs will always be there. Um, but uh, family's not, you know. And um, so I think it's important that, you know, people when somebody gets injured is that you give of your time and of yourself for that person to help them come along. And then the other thing is, is that that hospital, um, had a great cafe.
0: So. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So it was, uh, that was an extra little perk of coming, <laughs> coming up there. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, Hey, let's, uh, let's get to this interview with uh, Andrew Pelling and we will uh, talk to you guys on the other side. All right. This week on the Live to Walk Again podcast, we are lucky enough to visit with Andrew Pelling. Uh, Andrew's a professor at the University of Ottawa, a TED Senior Fellow, a Fellow of the Royal Society of Biology, an Honorary Research Fellow at the University of Western Australia, and a member of the College of the Royal Society of Canada. Uh, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me.
0: Um, I'm so excited about this. I've been uh, showing everybody that will watch uh, your your TED video uh, regarding the the asparagus scaffold for the the spinal cord research. Um, but I wanted to know you yeah, before we get into that. Can you kind of just let give everybody a, a, an idea of what what you all do at the at the Pelling lab there?
2: I <laughs> me. yeah, for sure. Um... So yeah, we're a research group uh, at the University of Ottawa and um, I approach scientific research a little differently than a lot of academics um, in that when when I was a kid and I think a lot of kids are like this, we grow up very curious about the whole world and we have a lot of questions. And over time, as you become an adult, a lot of that gets beaten out of us. And um, I think that's a part of a famous Carl Sagan quote. Um, And I really wanted to start a research lab that was driven just by curiosity and, and not so much about solving problems or uh, maybe treating a specific disease or anything like that, but but rather just simply asking questions and using the tools of the scientific method to create new knowledge in the world. And I had this fairly, uh, maybe a little bit naive idea or maybe optimistic idea that um, that discovery and curiosity would ultimately be the driver of innovation. And I didn't know specifically what type of innovation or where the applications would come, but they would come and I would rely on human curiosity as this powerful tool. And, um, and yeah, that's led the lab into so many different directions. We've worked on many different things from really fundamental studies of like how do cells feel forces? Like, you know, do they, does a single cell feel it when you poke it? to, you know, how, how does a tumor form when you start with one single cell in a, in a sheet of healthy cells and, and building that's, these types of studies have necessitated us to build different devices, to control these things. So we've had to learn lots of electronics and building things and lots of cell biology. And, um, and eventually we got into sort of our best known work, which was, um, sort of a joke, but we, we, (laughs) to be honest, we, we started thinking about how could we grow human or animal cells inside of plant tissues and uh and yeah and that that led to some of our more recent discoveries that um that I'm sure we'll talk about today
0: yeah yeah so you know I I, in the the TED uh, talk video that that came out I guess in December of 2020 um -hmm. you talked like initially i guess you used an apple a wedge of apple and i try to explain this to people and andrew and they're just like what are you talking about it's so what i you know i show them send them a video or whatever and they're like oh my god that's crazy so you know talk about how that study that and the apple um be using a wedge of an apple for um creating a, a human ear um how that came about and then we'll we'll kind of get into the the spinal cord stuff sure after that
2: sure um So to be honest, uh, a a lot of our work gets inspired by science fiction and, you know, bad um, science fiction movies. And there was a, there's this old movie called Little Shop of Horrors, which was about this plant that um, ate people and uh, it sang and its name was Audrey II. And people, you can go online and find images of this thing. I
0: remember that. I'm old enough to definitely remember that one
2: it's like a giant venus flytrap type of thing and we started you know we were looking at it and it was really cool because it was very much part plant and it had leaves and it was green and and at this other side of that it's it also had a tongue and teeth and sort of had mammalian or human characteristics and we started to wonder you know could we grow something like this in the lab <laughs> and this is really honestly like how so many of our projects start and uh, and, and you know that's really fun that part here the next step of being a scientist is really well developing a hypothesis and a methodology and objectives and measurable outcomes like how do we take the next steps and um, that's the part of science I love Uh, and we start to hypothesize that perhaps we could take plant tissues and strip away all the plant cells and and DNA and leaving you with just the fibrous part of the plant you know the stuff that gets stuck in your teeth you know And, and that material cellulose would be something we could grow, you know, cells onto human cells onto, uh, as a scaffold. And, um, you know, it, it took us about a year of failing and (laughs) struggling through that project. Um, but we eventually cracked it and, um, we discovered, well, for the, you know, we discovered for the first time that you could actually use apple flesh, the, the, the fleshy part of the apple as a scaffolding material to grow cells. Um, And, you know, this didn't come out of the blue. There's a whole field of biomaterials research where you make scaffolding to replace body parts and reconstruct damaged tissues. And uh, one of the most famous examples of this is, uh, probably from the mid 90s was this uh, ear that was made from cartilage from a cow, I believe, and it was implanted into an animal to show that it was compatible. Um, and a colleague of mine was asking me, you know, could you recreate that study? And in this case, now that you've got plant materials, you don't have to use animal sources, and, and therefore it might be better, it might be more well accepted by the body and it's more ethical and wouldn't that be cool it'd be cheaper as well and uh so then we started yeah we the you know this we sought to kind of go after this prime example and and we carved really hand carving human ear shapes from an apple (laughs) stripping out all the apple cells and DNA and then putting human cells into it and that was the kind of really that was the light bulb moment that was like wow you know we we can actually um, do this and and show that it worked. And, um, at the time it was pretty (laughs) unconventional (laughs) and it it still is weird. I know that, but, um, but that started a whole new field, uh, of research for us.
0: Wow. That's so cool. And so, and then with the asparagus, uh, study for, you know, I guess you, you, in the video, you say you had chopped off the end of of an asparagus getting ready for dinner. And, you know, talk, talk about that, how, how that kind of clipped in your brain.
2: Yeah. I think, you know, once you've, once you've kind of gone down the rabbit hole of growing cells on, on apples, um, any plant becomes fair game at this point. And we were literally, um, you know, grocery store and, and buying all sorts of plants and you know the label would look like a farmer's market honestly we're, just, and we're trying everything uh, really just to see what would work and what wouldn't and i honestly i was um at home during just during that time when we were first making these discoveries so this is probably 2013 or so um 2014 um and I, and I was cooking, I was making asparagus, and I cut the ends off, um, like most people do. And, um, and I was looking at the ends, and what you can see are all these long channels or capillaries. Um, they're the same things you find in celery. Like a lot of school kids, you'll put celery in a glass of like food coloring, and you'll see the food coloring move up these vascular bundles. Um, and the asparagus was full of these things and the asparagus is roughly the size of a human spinal cord roughly and i started to wonder you know could we take advantage of these channels to potentially guide axons and neurons and regeneration
0: in in the spinal cord and um,
2: that's where the idea came from
0: (laughs) you know it's i've been doing this podcast now for a little over two years and, you know, we do, we try to talk to as many research people that we can get on, on the show. And uh, I feel like that's the main, uh, you know, scaffolding is the main issue with, I think anyway, or one, one of the probably top couple of issues facing spinal cord injuries is figuring out how to get the, the cells to grow in there. You know, you can inject stem cells in there, but if you can't get them to grow in the right direction, yeah. then you you know, it doesn't really do any good. Um, So, you know, had you, I I, I guess that's a huge key for this thing. And then, had you thought at all about spinal cord injury research prior to, you know, just (laughs) stumbling upon this asparagus looking like a a spinal cord? Uh, No, not really. I mean, um,
2: this is, you know, part of when I started my lab, I started my lab in 2008. So, like, 13 years ago or so. And I had this hypothesis that if I just let the group follow its curiosity, these sort of serendipitous things would begin to happen over time. And one of the things we had been thinking a lot about and and playing around with for years was how do cells feel shapes? How do they move through environments in 3D? And and all of that knowledge that's not as, you know, it doesn't, you don't get TED talks for this and doesn't get the press, but all of that knowledge suddenly came back because now we had we were dealing with scaffolds again three-dimensional objects that had channels so and we had already done all these studies of how cells move through channels and um and so certainly in as a scientist you're reading the literature and I I had knowledge of like a lot of the scaffold channels in them and, and that's certainly not an original idea like you say um but that was in the background and you know from from our own studies what we were noticing with plant scaffolds specifically, was when we implanted them, they were incredibly inert. So we just didn't, they didn't suffer from the classic problems of rejection and fibrosis and and things like that. And and in fact, actually, without even trying, you know, blood vessels were forming inside of them, cells were infiltrating, um, and they were really becoming integrated with the body really, really well. Um, Some of our first samples that we sent to a pathologist. Uh, they actually thought we sent healthy tissues. They didn't realize we had sent scaffolds. Um, so we again, just kind of stumbled on this following our curiosity. And so the idea was there, but I definitely had no background in spinal cord injury mm-hmm. research or, or any knowledge. And you know one of the things my lab does, I think, really well is we collaborate. Uh, and across broad disciplines it's a necessity for the type of work we do and so i you know kind of got up the courage and i looked for well who's who's the top neurosurgeon near me um and uh this is dr eve sai she's here in ottawa she's one of the top neurosurgeons in canada and i just sort of reached out and said can we can we have a meeting i I was sure she was going to throw me out of her office Uh, (laughs) But I brought her um, me and, and a couple of members of the team. We brought her some scaffolds that we'd made from asparagus. We hadn't tried anything yet, and sort of walked her through the ideas. And um, and she looked at me like sort of point blank and, and said, "You know, can I can I use this today? Can I put this in one of my patients?" I was like, You're crazy! Like I, I could, you know, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but now I do. It's like the potential for it. And, and the number of people out there who are um, you know living with spinal cord injury it's uh, I can appreciate what, why she asked me that at the time but I you know I convinced her let's let's maybe you know your lab does animal studies on this and can do has the expertise to do the preclinical validation and um, we
0: can make the scaffolds
2: so let's collaborate on this.
0: Wow wow and, and so um, I know in the in the TED talk you talk about the doing some uh, studies on rats mm. how that so how long from inception to rat studies like how long did that take and then and, and talk about because in the rat studies it, you know I guess you only you just used like sterilized stripped down asparagus right no That's stem right. cells nothing like that so yeah t- talk about the the rat studies and, and how long I guess it took for those to get started and then yeah.
2: So, those started in about 2015. Um, as you might be able to appreciate, it was not easy to get funding for this. It was pretty out there, um, and I have to thank uh, the University of Iowa for the initial support for this. Um, specifically, our former Vice President of Research, uh, Dr. Mona Nemer, who you know, I, I met with her and I said, like, we really have an opportunity to do something spectacular here, or it's going to fail completely. (laughs) And and, uh, she seeded the the study um, with some seed funding and and got us going. Um, Now, it wasn't until really last year that we'd finished the study. It, It took five years. And mainly because we started to see positive results pretty early on. And I was very skeptical. Um, I think we all were, because like, like, nothing about this makes sense. Like, I, come on, this is such a difficult, how is it possible that we can come along with a piece of asparagus and, and see some positive recovery in motor function? And, and so really actually the next several years was just me and the team sort of demanding that we repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. We've got to validate, because like something like this can't be right. <laughs> And this is science, that's the scientific process. It's just this process of eliminating alternative explanations and we eventually got to this point where it really looked like the scaffold was having a, a therapeutic effect in these animals in this in the type of injury that we were inducing. And, um, and that's when we started to feel a bit more comfortable talking about it last year when, when we released the study so um, And yeah, and like you mentioned, uh, that's a good point about the stem cells. We weren't using stem cells, we weren't confounding the results with lots of therapeutics and everything else you could add. I really wanted to see what does the scaffold do itself as a sort of baseline. And then if it's got positive effects, maybe we can build upon that. And and yeah, so we were, you know, the rats are not perfectly walking. It's just not some miracle cure or anything like that, but um, it was definitely having positive effects uh, in line with other scaffolds that relied on stem
0: cells, so I had to have stem cells present. So uh, that was pretty cool, right? Uh, when did you first start noticing that um, it seemed to be works? I know in the video you said <laughs> I think eight weeks later um, on the rats that you showed in the video that they were starting to move. And like you said, it's not perfect; they're really still struggling a bit, but they're definitely their legs, their hind legs are, are moving. Uh, how long before you, you started noticing some of that stuff, was it pretty early on or did it take, you know, I, mean, I know you said you were doing testing for the better part of five years. So. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. We were
2: noticing. this is the thing, you know, I, we couldn't, I wasn't, I was unsure. Like, are we just anthropomorphizing here? Are we projecting onto the animals? But it did seem like, you know, by four weeks, maybe a little bit earlier than that, that they were displaying signs of uh, their rear limbs moving that didn't look like reflex or some, you know, just a weird thing. And it also certainly, again, this is you not know, totally humanizing these these animals right now, but it looked, it, it really seemed to be behaving in a way that was reminiscent of like pins and needles in your leg. Like this sort of kind of looked like they were sort of being bothered by their legs. and you know scratching at them and then eventually starting to move them in a more coordinated fashion and um but yeah it was it was you know, around that time three to four weeks we were sort of noticing things and i remember the first study um uh the postdoc uh Dr Charles Currier and uh, the PhD student Daniel Modulewski He's the first author of the paper and he really kind of led the study um They were noticing this in the first cohort of animals and they they called me into the animal facility in the middle of the night, you know, like they couldn't believe what they were seeing in the cages and uh, to the point where they had to get me out of bed and get over there. And it was, I don't know, it's one of those moments in your career that you just probably would never forget Like I couldn't, couldn't believe what was happening.
0: That's so amazing. That's so amazing. Uh, I did want to backtrack for one second back to um, talking about the kind of the stability of the the scaffold itself mm-hmm. um, and, and how I guess the you know the, the it's not gonna your body's not going to try to reject it you mentioned because it's a I guess a plant material that's been stripped down. Um, what do you th- I guess what do you think the the benefit of that is? I mean, cause it's going to, then it's going to, it's going to be stable constantly. It's never going to basically disintegrate. Is that, that, that's what I gathered anyway. Is that kind of the, the case with these? Yeah. I mean, we don't,
2: you know, we don't have data from 20 years of an implant. So we, I can't be a hundred percent sure here, but from everything we've seen so far, um, the plant cellulose is interesting. It's, um, it's actually crystalline. It's, it's got a crystal structure it's, it's very stable and inert it, it it's very hard for things to get at it um, and to modify it or dissolve it and, and this is one of the reasons why most people, uh, at the time, at least, would never have used it or even thought to use it because the sort of dogma of biomaterials and, and the ideal scenario is that a biomaterial might be there for a limited time, allow your body to repair, and then eventually would dissolve or go away. Um, and that, I mean, that makes sense. Um, this is a little bit um, <laughs> unconventional because it's really probably not going to go away. It's very long-lasting. and, and uh, But unlike many long-lasting materials, it's very inert. So it doesn't it doesn't go through these processes of rejection and, and becoming encapsulated in, in weird ways. And in fact just sort of sits there and just provides structure for the surrounding cells um, without doing too much else. Um, and so that stability I think is really important. Um, When many biomaterials break down, they release side products or they go through these transition products and and those can cause inflammation and and further problems. And because of that dissolving process, resorption process, and obviously in something sensitive like a spinal cord, that that might be an issue, right? Um, In fact, it was actually something that um, Eve uh, was saying to us um, when we first met her um, she had been asking, uh, bioengineers for quite a while to develop a scaffold that did not dissolve. She wanted something that was stable because in her study, she was noticing that as these things broke down, you know, they would change the pH and that would have sort of toxic effects on the cells. And, um, and I think that's what got her attention about it's like all of a sudden, you know, something she'd been asking for, for many years, um, we came along with and uh, I think that's maybe gave us a bit of credibility in our eyes but uh, yeah
0: yeah yeah um so in the video I know you said and this is from eight months ago or so obviously um you said that in the next two years you're hoping to start human studies with this mm-hmm. where I mean is that still the game plan like where where does that stand for you right now
2: yeah for sure um let me just for transparency like um the this technology, we licensed it out to a, a startup company. I'm a co-founder of that company. I'm the chief scientific officer there. Um, so just so everybody is aware. Um, and and really, the clinical translation of this, it's it's too expensive and too hard for an academic lab to do. It was not the place for this. That's why we created this company. Um, and yeah, that, that still is the game plan. Uh, we're right now um, basically going through the a regulatory process to show safety. So that's a key hurdle and that's gonna be a key milestone for us to then take the next steps into the human trials and all that. I think the two-year timeline is still um, realistic, but I mean, again, these are, it's gonna start small, it's gonna be slow, um,
0: and Do you think uh, COVID set you guys back at all with trying to get to that point? Because um, I know up in, in Canada, you're dealing with a little bit more yeah. restrictions than we are down here in the United States.
2: Yeah, I would say, like you know, honestly, the FDA has been amazing. We we were um, really thrilled to be sort of designated a breakthrough device, and that that does put us on an accelerated timeline with the FDA. But this all happened <laughs> right at COVID, the start of COVID, and obviously the FDA was kind of preoccupied with right. many things at that point. Um, so yeah, th- there's obviously some delays there, but. Um, you know, more or less, I'm still pretty uh, optimistic about the future here. This is what we're driving to. Uh, and our key thing, what we've got our focus on right now is just doing all of our diligence to ensure we've passed every single safety test and assay that that is required um, so that we can then move into the human trials. We don't, we no matter what, safety is going to be first, right? We won't just launch into a human trial no matter what. So, um but you know, this, this is the, uh, culmination of, I don't know, five, six years of animal studies and preclinical work. So now, now it's kind of crunch time for us.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's that gotta be exciting for you for sure. Uh, you know, are you going to try to be, uh, try to work then, uh, with the study initially right there in Ottawa? Um, or is it, do you know where, where it's going to start yet or, um, it won't be just in Ottawa for sure.
2: Um, it's not possible really. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, right now, uh, for our our breakthrough designation, we're really only, um, you know, we've got a subpopulation of people that we can potentially treat, right? So these are acute uh, within 96 hours of the injury, you know, very, um, and in um, sort of thoracic region, and, and that's, you know, so it's a, it's a narrow band. So, you know, and the number, of course, the number of people who might qualify, you know, these are sort of parameters we're, we're going to have to find out. Um, and we're working with a number of spinal cord agencies and foundations to, to design for this, but I suspect it'll be North America, but these, we don't know yet. We don't specifically know yet.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, And, you know, talking about how with the rat study that there was no stem cells or any kind of, um, you know, booster to to make the the cells grow on the on the uh, um, scaffolding or anything. Is that going to be the same with the with the human study, or are you going to kind of boost that with with some kind of stem cells, or you know, what's that going to look like? Do, or do you even know yet?
2: Yeah, I, I don't think we really know yet. I my instinct, you know, is again to use the scaffold alone. It's also again it. it once you introduce stem cells and therapeutics, you've, you know, you've magnified the number of safety tests and all of that and time it will take to get there. And I, I think, you know, we need to know what the scaffold is going to do uh, by itself. Um, we've got pretty good evidence of what's going to happen in, in animals and in, in also in larger animals. And um, uh, I think that's the place to start to, to get things moving. Um, and as we, you know, that's the really nice part of we've had a great experience working with the FDA actually. And this is what's I think really cool is, is, is that we have this ability to go back and forth with data and just make decisions, um, in real time with, you know, always thinking about like, how do we get this to humans as fast as possible? What's the fastest way there? And I think that's without stem cells for now. Uh, I think it obviously stem cells and therapeutics, you know, if, if they, you know, actually have benefit, then why not start adding these things and studying that. But again, part of our diligence, part of our rigor here is that we, we start with the animal trials. We go through those, we gather the evidence and and take the steps necessary to ultimately protect people um, and hopefully create something that's
0: longer lasting in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wanted to know, Andrew, um, having the, the technology designated as a, a breakthrough medical device by the FDA, what does that, I mean, both mean for you, for you and your study? I mean, that's got to be just ex- super exciting for you guys and, and show that you're really doing great work. But um, yeah, I mean, just talk about the process of that and, and what kind of, benefits that provides you and and the lab or you and the company that as you're trying to get this thing rolled out
2: yeah I, very much this was driven by the company and um you know it's again expensive and time-consuming process and involved uh, process um the breakthrough device ultimately what it means is it accept, it makes it gives us an ability to interact with the fda very quickly so you know rather than submitting huge packages of data and and That take years to gather and then many months to review. We can go much quicker. Let's talk about one particular aspect of the study. Here's a a small package of data. Let's talk back and forth about this and um, work collaboratively with the FDA to design both the sort of benchmarks we need to meet, as well as what you know what how to plan the human study. What does that look like? What are the parameters that you're you know are going to be approved? and and this sort of speeds up the interaction, and I feel like it is more collaborative, and, and that's really actually a nice way to work with the regulator, um, as opposed to sort of combative or you know, pushing and pulling. But, um, so that's what it really means, and it's it's a it's some valid you know it's really validation for us and and the potential of the technology. Uh, we still have to prove it, um, but yeah, that's. Um, I think, you know, as, as you know, um, there really isn't a solution out there that's become the gold standard, um, and these are the, this is the type of situation that the Breakthrough designation was built for, for accelerating technologies um, in these areas where there just isn't um, an intervention that seems to work right now, or at least broadly works um, and gets us going.
0: Right. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I just have a couple, a uh, few more questions here for you, Andrew. Um, <laughs> you know, I did want to know, and this is such a, so interesting. I feel like I keep you on, on, on the line all day, ask you different questions about this, but um, I know your time is valuable, so I won't keep you too long, but. So you mentioned that acute acute thoracic injuries is kind of your focus at this point. Um, somebody like myself who has been, paralyzed for 20 years and and i'm a c-level um quadriplegic so um you know what are the uh, do you think this is something that can eventually work for i mean obviously you're dealing with scar tissue with older injuries and things like that but um you know i guess talk about the the possibilities for for long-term spinal cord injuries with this with this uh breakthrough
2: yeah i i fully appreciate what you're saying here um and what Anybody who's living with SCI, yeah, you know, is, has been living with it for a while, is thinking and feeling right now. Um, we work very closely with patient advocates and, and, and other and, and people just who live with this on a daily basis from all aspects of, of the injury. And um, I, I do think there is hope there. I so we're going back to academic lab on, I'm putting my professor hat on now. And that's specifically what we're studying at the moment. Um, and we're trying that, and that's the beauty here is the academic lab can kind of take on the higher risk, more unknown work, whereas the company can take the, the most, the short-term immediate things that need to happen. And then hopefully when the higher risk, big open questions about chronic disease or injuries, and things like that are more well worked out, they can we can transfer that technology to the company and then they can move through the clinic um, we're working on that now. Yeah. Scar tissue is a big question. We're thinking about a lot. Um, and, you know, in speaking with different neurosurgeons, there's a lot of, a lot of hesitancy to cut into that, or, you know, uh, especially if you have some function there. Uh, so the surgical intervention needs to be thought about and worked out. That's something we're looking at, uh, and studying right now. I, I don't have an answer on that right now. Um, as well as you know really reformulating um, the type of material itself like how do, if you've got a big block of scar tissue how how do you get in there is a solid piece of asparagus really the best way to go you know these are the types of fundamental studies we're doing right now uh, we actually just got a, a, a large donation um, that just started this month last month um, to study this over the next three years and hopefully develop some solutions uh, again in rats uh, but that'll form the basis of next steps um, in terms of clinic
0: right and that must be difficult to look at uh, long-term injuries because a rat's lifespan obviously is so much shorter than a human so yeah. um, you know I don't know if that if you can like factor it down by like well a rat lives this long human lives this long like let's say you know this is this is how long the things, the, the rat has been injured, so we can, but I've, scar tissue probably doesn't develop that fast either on, on them compared to humans that have been dealing with it for 20 years. So.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know that, you know, rats are not humans, obviously. <laughs> and, you know, I think this is something very few people talk about, but the reality is that rat studies are great. They're fine as a start, but they obviously aren't human. And how much translation actually happens is, is, is small. Um, that said, you know, in the injury models we have available to us, we, we can generate that scar tissue and we're actually also, so the initial study was a full transection. So, you know, obviously that's not the most common type of injury. Um, but it was a good place to start as a sort of the worst case scenario. We're now moving into more contusion, compression injuries, um, that are a bit more complex and we're studying both acute, like immediate intervention, as well as letting uh, scar tissue form over a period of weeks um, and that that is actually well more or less well defined in terms of the time period so we can wait whole months and you have a pretty solid scar there um, and what we're trying to work out now is like how exactly do we intervene in there and, and can we you know use some of our new formulations for that that injury
0: but uh, that's going to take a bit of time for us to, to really work out Okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. I'm this is so exciting to me, Andrew. I'm, I'm <laughs> you this is, I I do appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, I did want to note, the I guess the last question I wanted to ask you was um, you know, in the in the Ted Talk you show uh, a piece of this asparagus in a petri dish that's been sterilized and, and the, the extra plant matter removed. Um, is this going to be something that you make for, is this going to be something that the company can just mass produce or, and then the doctor can trim it down or do whatever they need to do with it? Or is this something that's going to be made on an individual basis and then, you know, shipped out as quickly as possible to get to the the patient that that was newly injured?
2: Yeah, great question. (laughs) I mean, you just nailed it. Um, so both, both options are on the table right now. Um, we're still working on, you know, really what the best solution is here. There's, um, uh, there's positive, there's pluses and minus to both situations. Um, we're not into the stage yet where we're like full on, like let's, let's become the global supplier of spinal cord scaffolds. So we're not there yet. That's going to take more time. Um, and it's going to take some time to really understand you know, how how does a hospital want to work? How do the clinicians want to work in this case? Um, my instinct is it would be better to have these already delivered and on site. So because these are trauma situations. Um, whereas, you know, obviously someone who's been like you that's been living with this for years, you know, potentially that is, you know, we can we can do some imaging first and understand the injury site and what the scar tissue looks like potentially customized there but uh, these aren't we haven't made these firm decisions yet
0: yeah i see i see Uh,
2: a good question
0: (laughs) (laughs) i try i try uh well yeah you know professor andrew pelling i think uh, i'm hoping that next time we talk i'm adding uh you know cured spinal cord injuries on, on the list of uh list of all the things in your bio but well
2: <laughs> I mean that's the thing you know the the bio and the titles and all that uh, you know it's this is all the result of just I've just been so lucky to work with such a great team of people that's honestly it's this is you know this is what science is so good at doing you know um you bring together people we use our curiosity and imagination and then we use the rigor of the scientific method to make discoveries and innovate and it's why I'm a scientist and I, and I, 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 really, I'm trying to keep myself in check here. Like, I don't want to give false hope, but it is really exciting. These discoveries. I'm, I'm just, I feel really lucky. I feel very responsible and or a large sense of responsibility to see this through and, and to work with these teams. Cause like, honestly, there's a big team of people at the university, big team of people at the company, there's investors and the people who've taken the chance on us and are giving us the chance to, try to, to make a dent in this problem and improve the world around us. So
0: that's a beautiful thing. It really is. And, and, you know, for myself and I'm sure most of the spinal cord injury community, we definitely salute you guys and are appreciative of what you're doing. Um, You know, for anybody that wants to to follow and kind of get updates on what exactly you guys are doing, what's the best way to do that? Um, I don't know if it's through social media or your website or, or, you know, go ahead and tell us how to, how to keep uh keep on track with you.
2: Yeah, I mean um social media, Twitter and Instagram at Pelling Lab. Um there's a Pelling Lab newsletter as well that you can sign up for and uh and the website of course. Is, 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 the social media is probably the best way.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay, well I'll I'll definitely link all of uh, all your social medias in with the uh with the podcast when I post it in the next few days here but uh, yeah Professor Pelling thank you so much for for joining me I really do appreciate it and uh, I think uh, yeah I, I think you guys are doing amazing work
2: thanks so much thanks a lot for uh, the chance to share our work
0: yeah thank you we'll talk soon
2: okay you too
0: Bye. all right that was Andrew Pelling I want to thank him again for taking some time out of his busy schedule to to join me on the show and uh, yeah that. I'm, my mind is still blown we were just talking about that uh off the air that that video is oh. the 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 ted talk video is insane
1: like, yeah it's a must see it really is it's a it's amazing um there's some parts that may make you a little queasy um but uh, it's all for the good and uh i enjoyed the heck out of it yeah it's uh i mean just the
0: i you gotta appreciate what those guys are doing at the in that lab and he was quick to talk about his team and how great they were um when we were when me and andrew were visiting and um you know yeah they're just he he i mean he basically said he almost bankrupted his lab by just doing the tests over and over again because they wanted to make sure they were right and they were having such good good results that they you know he almost couldn't believe it so he just kept trying again and again and made sure that it was it was uh, legitimate, and then they just got um, uh, like a, a few months ago, almost a year ago, I think they got uh, emergency FDA approval for um, uh, what is it called? Uh, breakthrough. Uh, they received breakthrough medical de- uh, device designation yeah. or technology de- designation, so that they could, uh, you know, get get it pushed through quicker and and start testing it. So um, he said they're gonna. You know, they're starting small, very small with the with the human testing, which is going to be, um, you know, done partly in in Ottawa. And then they're going to team up with some other research universities around uh, the country, said probably North America is going to be the first wave of studies. And, and you know, for me, it's going to be the, the initial study is going to be on thoracic level Injuries, so more you know, low-level quadriplegics, high-level paraplegics, right? Um, and it's going to be within the first, uh, like he said, they're going to try to get it done in the first like 96 hours after injury. So and initially, it's going to be just acute injuries that that are are brand new that are going to be able to do this, and then you know, hopefully, uh, eventually, it's it's going to spread because and and I talked to him about that too because the issue with somebody like me, who's been injured for 23 years is scar tissue. tissue. Yeah. scar tissue. Yeah. So until we can get that resolved, um, you know, with some sort of maybe like a microsurgery tool or something like that, that, that can get rid of the the scar tissue. But I mean, if you can get rid of the scar tissue, you can, this could be a, you know, game changing device right. for anybody. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I did find another, uh, study ricardo that um just or a new a new device that actually also received uh the fda breakthrough uh medical device designation and it's from a company named synapse biomedical and the the product is called trans uh and it basically is for people that i mean it's for anybody that has an issue where you have to be put on a ventilator for a a long period of time. So, or an extended period of time. So, um, you know, I know when I was in the hospital, when I was first in the hospital, they had me on a ventilator and I know when they took me off my, my lung, or at least one of my lungs collapsed, I think. And so they had to put me back on it. And, uh, this device is supposed to basically strengthen your, uh, diaphragm to make you be able to get, to help you get off of a ventilator nearly immediately, so that uh, that's a huge thing for you know people, and, and it might be able to build up the strength in, in people that do um, that have higher level injuries that have to be on a ventilator all the time. Yeah, like
1: Christopher Reed. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 So yeah, think,
0: yeah. Exactly. So, so that's uh, that's exciting news, and you know it's just continuing to uh, to you know the, the ball just keeps getting move down the, down the court every time, so.
1: And some of those things may even have practical applications to people that have, like, MS, right? Exactly. That's one of the things that they have difficulty breathing, you know, might be able to extend their life.
0: Yeah, and that's, you know, I mean, anybody in the, in the disability community, um, is, you know, Sean Fluke that I talked with last week on the show, he made a point to say that, you know he used to call it the spinal cord injury community but now he just says he's you know working for the disability community cuz it's i mean we're all in this together we you know a lot of people and you know a lot of people are going to end up with disabilities one way or another in their life you know of some sort of mobility issues or right. um so you know it's it's definitely something that that is is a good a good community to to be a part of and and work towards, you know, uh, helping to to alleviate. So, um, and, and speaking of, you know, with the the diaphragm situation, I started using this uh, device called an AeroFit. I don't know, I it's sitting right over there actually, but uh, it's a little mouthpiece that you put in. You can connect it to an app on your phone, and they gave me uh like a set schedule of of uh breathing exercises to do with this thing there's like on the app there's like 30 different uh breathing exercises, maybe even more than that and i'll tell you what like when i get done using you think like oh it's a little breathing machine (laughs) like it's gonna be fine like i'm sweating and like ready to pass out but it's like so it it has you know you it'll be like you breathe in as deep as you can breathe out as and get all the oxygen out of your lungs and then hold your breath for like 30 seconds and by the end of it i'm just like turning blue i feel i mean you you can still like cheat on it or you, if you need to breathe you can breathe but it like lowers your score and i'm too damn competitive so yeah, exactly. i'm like i'm gonna i'm gonna pass out here before i uh before i breathe in so until it's uh it's a wild it's a wild uh, device but that's the whole thing with that is it's gonna um we're trying to build my diaphragm back up to to get to the point where i can you know i don't deal with any like lightheadedness and and i don't deal with that too much but i know my lungs aren't as strong as they could be and i've had pneumonia and things like that
1: yeah so do you think um that also applies to uh, like cardiac care patients
0: yeah well that's the funny thing is that so i saw this device and, and people on the podcast have already heard this but or people listening um i saw the device and it was um geared or being promoted by like olympic athletes and and that's what their main market is, because that's, you know, he basically, the guy Sean from uh, from AeroFit told me that, you know, basically they, that's where they make money. is like, oh, you know, professional athletes, Olympic athletes, college athletes, but it was originally designed to be for um, people that had dealt with asthma and, yeah, cardiac type oh, okay. stuff. So um, that was the whole that was the whole uh, purpose of it and he's like we kind of want to get back to that so um they're yeah they sent me out a, a device and have me sampling it now and we're gonna link up here he, they've been super busy with the olympics because they have a bunch of athletes that use them uh that are competing right now so um here in the next week or so we're gonna talk to sean uh coakley and and get his gonna maybe do have him on a podcast here shortly so
1: so it's interesting that you talk about, <clears throat> you know, your diaphragm building up and your core strength and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, aren't, uh, look at me. I mean, I'm not a big exercise guy. I mean, I do my yard work. I ride my bike, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm a, as you know, I'm a cardiac care survivor, right? You know, right. it's been 20 years now since I had a three way bypass <clears throat> and it's, um, you know, uh, one of those things that I never thought I'd see myself, um, you know, have to go through, you know, cause I was 40 years old at the time. And, um, and, uh, you know, it was a real shock to your life, but luckily I've been able to uh, manage it through exercise and, um, and, uh, diet. Right. Okay. Uh, the thing is, is that, um, those tools that you were just talking about are something that nobody really hears about, right? Because everybody's always like trying to uh, talk you into, um, supplements and drugs and, Other things, right? But what's really important is that maybe we start focusing on building up our core strength, right? Because um, there was a study in China a few years ago, and I don't remember the exact study. I just remember reading about it, where they were talking about elderly people in China don't fall as often or die of falls as often as people in the Western world was. And one of the reasons was because they um, found out that they have a stronger core. It had nothing to do with diet, nothing to do with heart or something like that and the reason was was they have a stronger core is because they walk on uneven surfaces and they were Uh noticing in modern china there's more falls along the elderly because the roads are smoother they have now sidewalks that are smooth and it's the old cobblestone the old paths and stuff like that that were in rural china that um these elderly people were living longer because they weren't falling as much wow so it's pretty interesting to see um that uh if you, you know, you build up your diaphragm, it helps build up those core muscles, helps build up your balance, you know, all those things are related.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a, that's very interesting. I yeah, I, I feel like maybe you had told me about that a while ago and I was going to use it on the show and I <laughs> completely spaced it off, but uh, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. And, you know, because that's a thing, like with a spinal cord injury, like if I just had, you know, if I had better balance, right. I would be you know, I'd be way more independent than I am now. And that's like, that's the one thing I'm trying to work on. I've been working with, uh, Nick Lucius from Barwis who we've had on the show. Um, and they, they work with professional athletes and college athletes and then also with, uh, people with, um, neurological disabilities. So to kind of have those two, two, uh, extremes working out in the same gym and like motivating each other, you know, to, to push harder and, um, and yeah, I mean that's the thing is the core strength. Like if you can if you can have good core strength, like yeah, that's that's a game changer for somebody with a spinal cord injury. So it's just yeah, developing that and then that's it's a little harder obviously with a spinal cord injury to develop that core strength, but um, every little bit helps. So yeah. Um I did want to bring up too, I know um you know, we talked a little bit about the family aspect of things um after a spinal cord injury. And I wanted—it's so funny because there's this picture I have that floats around of your son Dominic sitting on my lap on like his fourth birthday, or yeah. sorry, it must have been his fourth yeah. or fifth birthday. Um, no, I couldn't have been—it must have been his third or fourth birthday. I don't know. And he looked terrified in the in the picture. And uh, it, but he's—it was like I was still in the rehab hospital, and he is such a tiny little child and now he's like a full grown like adult man that's you know makes me feel so old every time like we hang out and so that you know I know we got to go out and, and spend some time together all of us and and uh Aunt Teresa and Uncle Dave and, and everybody and uh, this last weekend so it was uh just wanted to bring up how old I feel every time uh, I, oh. I end up seeing Dominic and Anthony
1: well one of the things is is that um my personal philosophy is is that um you know, life is hard, right? And there's a lot of struggles in life. Um, but you shouldn't shelter your kids from things like what happened to you. And so that's one of the reasons we brought them to the hospital, personally, yeah. was, was that, um, that uh, one, we were uh, hoping that they would you know, bring a smile on your face, right? And we didn't want them did. to be scared of people in wheelchairs, right? right? We wanted them to understand that things happen in life, that are not always pleasant. Life isn't always Legos and uh, Pokemon or whatever it was at the time, <laughs> right? And um, <clears throat> I know he probably was a little scared to sit up on your lap because he <laughs> saw you zipping down the halls. But um, <laughs> but the thing is, is that build, makes, I think it builds characters in children, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you never, I just, you know, there's a way to give kids bad news in a positive way. And that's what we were able to do with our kids and I know it was difficult for you Jeremy being a young man you know with your whole future ahead of you um but I think it helped build the character that my boys have today as young men
0: no I so. appreciate it. they're both uh,
1: they're outstanding
0: outstanding young men so I uh I appreciate that that's uh that's great to hear well uh before we get out of here I do want to just bring up uh Ryder uh one more time Ryder G. Stevens uh, his middle name's Giovanni, and uh, Brandon's wife likes to say that that's for her uncle or grandfather or something. But I'm like no, because my middle name's Giovanni. I'm claiming, I'm claiming a writer for for myself. So, um, you know, the young man, I have a I have a connection with him that uh, he's my first nephew. It's uh, you know I, I have a lot of love for him, and I'm hoping he's getting better had to yeah man he hasn't eaten in like four or five days like it's just he had he had a the boy had a ruptured appendix and played in a basketball tournament last weekend before he just could you know I don't know his mom took him to the hospital or to the urgent care on Monday and they're like we need to get him in for emergency surgery right now so um yeah you know, I just want to yeah definitely send our thoughts and prayers to to, the, to Ryder and, and Carmen and Brandon and hoping everybody gets healthy and happy in no time so
1: yeah yeah and on that you know you only have one uh, good body one good uh, um, you know health and uh, you should take care of it 24 7 you know so absolutely. be safe out
0: there folks be safe absolutely well Ricardo thank you man I've been wanting to do this for a while yeah, you're welcome. appreciate fine. you coming down and, uh, and yeah it's taken half your day out to, to come drive down to Olympia to, to record with me but yeah uh, yeah, yeah, thank you so much, man. Yeah, anytime, Jer. All right.